Well, we are uh, beginning a brand new series today, and so I do want to encourage you to uh, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. We're starting a series in the book of Daniel, and I'm not sure exactly what your reaction to that might be. It might be that you are somewhat uh, ambivalent towards the thought of doing a study of the book of Daniel. You're not really sure what it might have for you. It might actually be that you sort of roll your eyes when you hear that we're doing a series on the book of Daniel. You know, maybe you associate it with a good Sunday school stories, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, in the fiery furnace, but, but maybe not much beyond that. Or it could be that when you hear we're doing a series uh, on the book of Daniel, you say, aha, finally, you know, I get to break out all of the timelines and the prophecy charts. I hope we do kind of a, a deep dive into the time times and half a time. I hope we really unpack uh, the identification of those 10 horns, right? The European Union, obviously, and the abomination of desolation, those sorts of things, that might be you. You might fall into that category. So let me say that if you are ambivalent towards the book of Daniel, my hope is to show you the great relevance of this book for our day. If you are, on the other hand, sort of a prophecy junkie, Uh, I hope to show you that maybe you've been reading the book of Daniel the wrong way. Now, our series is called Kingdoms in Conflict because that is the overall theme of the book of Daniel. There are two kingdoms in this world, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And those two kingdoms have been taking divergent paths and have been in constant conflict with one another since the very beginning of time, or at least since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Now, since this is the first message in this series, we're going to do things a little bit differently today. I'm going to give you a little bit of historical background to the book of Daniel, and then I'm going to walk you through six reasons why we are spending the next 14 weeks or so studying the book of Daniel, or maybe just why the book of Daniel is so important. So we are going to be jumping around a fair bit in the book of Daniel today, but let me begin by just reading for you the first seven verses of Daniel chapter 1. This is God's word, and this is what it says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and, the, and of the nobility, Youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. 
So verse 1 gives us the historical background, but just reading that verse might not tell us all that we need to know. We're kind of parachuting into what was happening. The verse says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So I want to just sort of start by giving you a brief snapshot of Israel's history. What was actually happening at this time? So Saul was Israel's first king. He began his reign in about 1050 BC. He was followed by David, who was then followed by his son Solomon. And Solomon reigned, or at the end of Solomon's reign, you had this united Israel, but at the end of Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel was divided in two. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom was pretty much an unmitigated disaster. All of its kings were bad. It was eventually wiped out in 721 BC when the Assyrians, who were the dominant world power at the time, came in and basically just wiped out Israel. The southern kingdom of Judah lasted a little bit longer. It had a mix of good and bad kings and it sustained itself a little bit longer. But in 587 BC, it came to at least a temporary end when the Babylonians or the Chaldeans came in and wiped the city out, destroyed the temple and carried some of the exiles back to Babylon with them. This is where the book of Daniel takes place. It takes place in that period of exile between 587 and 539. And the history of Israel is actually extended a little further in the book of Daniel because in 539, what happened in 539 is that Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, which was now the dominant world power, issued a decree and said the Israelites could now return to their homeland. They could go back and eventually they could rebuild their temple and rebuild the walls around the city. That's where this book takes place. It was actually a really fascinating period of world history. There were lots of changes taking place. The balance of power was constantly shifting between different nations. And I think that brings us to the first reason why it's important for us to study the book of Daniel. And that is because it helps us see the difference between the kingdoms of man and the kingdom of God. Now, I entitled this series Kingdoms in Conflict, and there's a bit of a double meaning in that. On the one hand, what we see in the book is that the kingdoms of man are in conflict with one another. That's the change in the power structures, who's in control, who's in charge, and it changes. But the real conflict is always between the kingdoms of man and the kingdom of God. And you get a, a, just a glimpse of that conflict in the opening verses of this chapter. Listen again to verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, that's into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah, he didn't just sort of defeat the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. He actually took some of the vessels from the temple, brought them back and placed them in the temple of his God. And so when he did that, what he's doing is really making a statement saying, it's not just that we've defeated your armies, we've defeated your God. 
Now, we're going to go over these verses in a bit more detail next week, so I'm just giving you kind of the sketch this morning. But you can also see the conflict between the two kingdoms in the way that in addition to the vessels from the Lord's temple that Nebuchadnezzar takes, he also takes some of the people, some of the best people in the city of Jerusalem and brings them back as his trophies as well. And specifically, we're told about Daniel and the other youths who were part of the nobility in Israel. They were the exiles. They were youths without blemish. They'd been well-educated. And Daniel and his friends were taken. They were given new names. And they were put into a three-year re-education process. And the reason they had to be re-educated was not just so that they could learn the language of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. The reason was, as it says, they could study the literature, all the myths, and that they could learn all the values of the nation or of the kingdom of Babylon. And one of the ways the kingdom of man is different from the kingdom of God is in the values of the two kingdoms. And this has always been the case, and it is the case right now. Now, you know this. I mean, we live in the kingdom of Man, so you bump into this in your workplace. You might have a different set of values than your employer does. Right? You bump into this in your relationships. I mean, if your values are in line with the values of the kingdom of God, you will find yourself at odds with some of the values of your neighbors or your coworkers or even some of your extended family members. It's a conflict between Or you bump into this in the education system. I mean, you know what ought to be taught as of first importance. But you know that what gets taught as being of first importance is not always the same thing. And so there's this constant conflict between the values of the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom of man. But there's another clear contrast between these two kingdoms. And we're reminded of that in the book of Daniel. So remember what the first verse of chapter 1 said. It said, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. But now fast forward to chapter 5, verse 1. And there it says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. So Nebuchadnezzar is no longer king. His reign has come to an end, and his son or his grandson, Belshazzar, is now the one who rules over all of Babylon. But now look at chapter 9, verse 1. There it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of of the Chaldeans. And so now what we have in chapter 9 is not just a change in the succession of the kings in Babylon. We have an entire regime change. Darius was by descent a Mede. He was the first king in sort of this dominant Media Persia empire. Now we are dominated by a sort of media empire. It's a different Mede than, or media than that. And then if you go to chapter 10, verse 1, it says this. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So Cyrus represents yet another king. And the point not to be missed in all of this is that the kingdoms of man come and go, 
but the kingdom of God stands forever or remains forever. And this point is going to be made throughout the book of Daniel in a series of visions and dreams that God gives to various kings and to Daniel himself. So in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about a strange image, and he can't make any sense of it. This image had a golden head. Its chest and its arms were made of silver. Its midsection and thighs were made of bronze. And then its calves and its feet were made of a mixture of iron and clay. And Nebuchadnezzar is haunted by the dream. He doesn't know what it means. So Daniel interprets the dream by saying that each part of the the image represents a kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar is the gold head, but another kingdom is coming after him. And then when that kingdom ends, another kingdom is yet coming. And then there's this final king or this next kingdom that's sort of this fragile looking kingdom. It's a mixture of iron and clay, but it too will crumble. And when that kingdom crumbles, another kingdom will arise, but this one will be an eternal kingdom. Daniel says it like this. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. And the point of the vision is clear. The kingdoms of man come and go. But the kingdom of God stands forever. It's an eternal kingdom. And this is something we need to bear in mind today. Regardless of who occupies the earthly places of authority, regardless of whether it's the leader we chose or the one we voted against, regardless of what sorts of decisions come down from the cultural elites, we can have confidence that the kingdom of God will outlast all of it. And this ties in with the second truth we discover in the book of Daniel, which is that it's possible for biblical faith Not just to survive, but to thrive in the kingdom of man. The book of Daniel starts on really an ominous note. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies march into Judah's capital city. They take what they want from the temple. They take who they want from the people. They carry off the best and the brightest. They bring them back to Babylon. They give them new names. They put them on a new diet. They put them in this re-education process. And if we're looking in from the outside, the prospect for Daniel and his friends and for Israel does not look good. I mean, what hope is there that four Jewish teenagers, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, will be able to withstand all of the cultural pressure of life in Babylon? What hope is there that they can maintain their faith in the midst of all that? But as it turns out, they do just fine. More than fine, in fact. Rather than succumbing to the influence of Babylon, they end up influencing Babylon. Daniel and his friends all end up in influential positions in the kingdom, in the place of their exile. Now, notice that I said it's possible for biblical faith to thrive in the kingdom of man. It's not automatic. And it would be extremely naive to think that you can just sort of live in the kingdom of man, consume all of its entertainment, embrace all of its values, and not be shaped by those things. 
It would be extremely naive to think that you can just sort of turn your kids over to all the secular influences of the world, all the influence of the education system and Hollywood and the other formative aspects of our culture and not have them be shaped by it. This is why discipleship is so important. And it's clear from the outset of the book That Daniel and his friends understood that there were some aspects of their new culture they simply could not embrace or participate in. We're going to look at this in, in more depth next week as we see that there's some aspects of culture that we can receive. There's some aspects of culture that we need to reject and there's some aspects of culture that we ought to seek to redeem. For now, I just think it's good to remind ourselves that like Daniel, we are exiles. We live in this world as exiles and strangers. Listen to the way Peter put it in the New Testament. He said, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, we are all exiles. As Paul tells us elsewhere, our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And this ties in with the third truth we discover in the book of Daniel. Another reason we ought to engage with this book is because we come to understand that the pressures we face in the kingdom of man take different shapes. So the experience that Daniel and his friends had in chapter 1 seems quite pleasant, actually. I mean, listen to what verse 5 says. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. I mean, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? Eat the king's food, drink the king's wine, get a free education. Now, we'll get into the reasons why Daniel and his friends actually refused the king's food and his wine next week. But it's interesting that at the very outset of the book, the pressure to adopt the values of Babylon come through enticements of prosperity and ease. This is the sort of go along to get along kind of thing. And that is a real pressure in the kingdom of man. Everything is so much easier when you just conform. You know, sometimes the kinds of pressures that God's people face are different. They take a different shape than that. Sometimes instead of being offered the carrot, we're threatened with the stick. And this is what happens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3 when they refuse to worship Nebuchadnezzar's massive golden statue. That decree came like this, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And that's what happened 
to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice, there's no veil to the threat. It's just a threat. You do this or else. Now, we'll see this again in chapter 6. I mean, this is what happens to Daniel. The, there's an edict, a national, nationwide edict that's issued that everyone is, is supposed to, to pray to Darius. But Daniel refuses to do that, and he's thrown into a den of lions. The pressure to conform takes different shapes. Sometimes it's the enticement or the carrot, and sometimes it's the threat or the stick. Now, I think living in the West, we are far more used to the first kind of pressure than the second. But that might change. I was part of a faith leaders call with our local MP back in December. And part of what we were discussing was the implications of Bill C-6 for Christians and Christian ministries. Uh, Bill C-6 is the ban on conversion therapy. Now, that term, conversion therapy, sounds quite menacing. I mean, it brings up sort of all sorts of images of maybe electric shock therapy or something along those lines. But actually, the way that it's worded in the bill, and this is by design, is that it's intentionally vague. As it stands now, Bill C-6 and conversion therapy is defined so broadly that it could include things like counseling someone in your office who says they're struggling with same-sex attraction, and you dare not try to help them with that. It could include things like the public reading of biblical passages that state that homosexual activity and behavior is out of God's design for His creation and for His people. Now, listen, we're not there yet, but Christian charities, at least the ones that hold to biblical values, could see the loss of their charitable status or could even be charged with an indictable offense. Individual Christians who say things that go against the grain of the dominant values in our culture could be canceled. The values of the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God are often at odds. And those who aren't prepared to sign off and endorse the values of the kingdom of man might see a dramatic change in their futures. So we ought to be be prepared and we ought to expect to handle the pressure to conform that comes from both the enticements and the threats. And I think this book helps prepare us for that. A fourth reason I think it's important for us to engage in the study of this book is because it teaches us to keep one eye on the past, one eye on the future, and two feet planted firmly in the present. This is what we see with the prophet Daniel, and this, in fact, is how we're supposed to live. So what do I mean by having one eye on the past? Well, I've already told you, Daniel was in exile, right? He was taken from his home in Jerusalem and he was led off to Babylon some 900 miles away. And that's where the bulk of his life was spent. But Daniel didn't forget where he came from. And I mean that in more than one way. In chapter 6, when King Darius issues his decree that the only prayers that are legitimately allowed to be offered are the ones that are prayed to him, Daniel refuses to comply with that. This is how Daniel responds. It says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, 
where he had his windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, why does Daniel have his windows open toward Jerusalem? Is he nostalgic? Is he superstitious? Well, he's actually praying according to a biblical instruction. King Solomon, when he dedicated the temple of the Lord, he prayed, this, he prayed prophetically, actually, and this is what he said about Israel. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who've sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carry them captive that you may have compassion or that they may have compassion on them. See, Daniel knows exactly why or how he and his companions ended up in Babylon. He knows that the nation forgot the Lord. They forsook the Lord. And so he looks back, and he actually longs for home. But the other way Daniel's prayer reminds us of the past is the way that it says he did this, or he prayed this way, as he had done previously. So Daniel never forgot where he came from physically, but he also never forgot who he was spiritually. His practice was to get on his knees three times a day and pray to the Lord. And just because he's in a foreign place with a new set of rules doesn't mean he abandons that practice. So we look back, but we also look ahead Now, if you've read the book of Daniel, then you know that the structure of the book of Daniel is interesting because the first half of the book is in narrative or story form. And the last half of the book is a collection of visions and prophetic oracles. Now, it's the last half of the book that gets some people excited. They want to know about the identity of the beasts and the horns. They want to know about the timing of the 70 weeks and the 1,335 days. When does all of that take place? Well, that's not a bad instinct. The book does direct our attention to what will take place in the future. As Christians, we ought to have an eye on the future. We ought to look forward to the day when the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. We ought to be interested in the events leading up to the end of time as we know it, how those events will unfold. But having said that, the unfolding of those events is not our primary concern. And it's not actually the focus of this book. The book of Revelation has a lot to say to Christians living at that time about what they could expect, how they should prepare for it. But the focus of the book is actually on how to live faithfully in the present. 
And I think you see that same emphasis in the book of Daniel. See, the book of Daniel doesn't teach some sort of apocalyptic escapism. Daniel is given visions of the future, but he doesn't abandon his post because of that. In fact, Daniel worked for both the Babylonian and the Persian Empire. His feet were planted firmly in the present. Notice just the last verse of chapter 1. It says, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. See, Daniel stayed in that post the whole time he was there. All of this upheaval was taking place around him, and he knows that his first task is just to remain faithful. And that's our task as well. There were two figures in church history who took dramatically different approaches to the future. Now, they both lived under the benefits that came after the Emperor Constantine gave legal standing to the Christian religion. They lived in a time, actually, when Rome's power was turned towards Christians and not against them. But they also both lived to see the sack of Rome by the Visigoths. And one of those figures was Jerome. He was a late 4th century, an early 5th century scholar and church father. He was responsible for the production of the Latin Vulgate, the dominant translation of the Bible in Latin for hundreds of years. But when word of the sack of Rome reached Jerome, he took it as a sign of the end of the world. He retreated to a cave near Bethlehem and lived out his final days in isolation, just waiting for the end to come. I mean, what's the point of even trying? There was a contemporary of Jerome you may have heard of. He too was a church father. His name was Augustine or Augustine, as the Albertans like to say. And like Jerome, Augustine lived to witness the collapse of Rome in 410. And what did Augustine do when news of the impending fall of Rome reached his ears? Well, we know that one of the things he did was write a book entitled The City of God. It's a long book. It's basically a summation of world history that helps us understand that from the beginning of time, there have been two city construction projects at work. Two rival kingdoms, if you will, the city of man and the city of God. And in that book, Augustine helps us understand that empires come and go. Nations come and go. Leaders come and go. Even our abilities and achievements, all of it comes and goes. The one thing that doesn't come and go is the city of God or the kingdom of God. And so we look forward to that kingdom in all its fullness. It starts out small like a mustard seed, but it grows. Augustine spoke of the kingdom of God with these words. He said, how great shall be that happiness, which shall be tainted with no evil, which shall lack no good and which shall afford leisure for the praise of God, who shall be all in all. There shall be enjoyment of beauty. True honor shall be there. True peace shall be there. God himself, who is the author of all virtues, shall be there and shall be its reward. And see, with that as his future hope, he was able to live productively in the kingdom of man. 
And the difference in the responses of Jerome and Augustine were directly attributable to what they placed their confidence in and where their security came from. Jerome's confidence and sense of security came from Rome. It came from Caesar. And when that crumbled, his whole world crumbled. Augustine lived through the exact same events, but he placed his confidence in the unshakable kingdom of God. And so even when the earthly kingdom around him was shaking, his confidence remained. See, I think we're often tempted to take the approach of Jerome and just sort of run for the hills. And this takes us to another reason we ought to engage in a study of the book of Daniel, which is, that it re- or which is because it reminds us that God's people are ultimately optimistic. You know, pessimism is always easier than optimism. But as Christians, we know the end of the story, and so we always live with a sense of hope. And this is a good reminder in our day. There's a common practice of what we now refer to as doom scrolling, right? You've engaged in this. You just kind of scroll through your news feed, and and you just find one bad report after another. This is how terrible everything is. The sky is constantly falling. Pessimism makes way better headlines. Now, this is nothing new, but even if we just reflect on some fairly recent history, you'll see that this is the case. And so often that pessimism is wrong. We gravitate towards pessimism more than optimism. 2008 was the worst year for the global economy in modern history. Stock markets around the world basically collapsed. Unemployment was surging. Things looked bleak. And just when it looked like things couldn't get worse, the Wall Street Journal published a front page article on December 29th, 2008, saying we hadn't seen anything yet. The worst was yet to come. Now, the Wall Street Journal is the most prestigious financial newspaper in the world. And the front page story on that day contained the outlook of a Russian professor named Igor Panarin. Here's what the article said. Around the end of June 2010, or early July, Panarin says, the U.S. will break into six pieces, with Alaska reverting to Russian control. California will form the nucleus of what he calls the California Republic and will be part of China or under Chinese influence. Texas will be the heart of the Texas Republic, a cluster of states that will go to Mexico or fall under Mexican influence. Washington, D.C. and New York will be part of an Atlantic America that may join the European Union. Canada, Canada will grab a group of northern states, Professor Panarin calls the Central North American Republic. Hawaii, he suggests, will be a protectorate of Japan or China. Now, remember, this wasn't published on some rogue media site. This was the front page of the Wall Street Journal, and it sold. Pessimism sells because it sounds plausible. Optimism, on the other hand, sounds like a sales pitch. When we hear an optimistic outlook, the future is bright, we almost think 
instinctively. That sounds too good to be true. How could it possibly be like that? Everything is obviously getting worse. How could you possibly have hope in the future? Well, another fairly recent example from history might help. Think about Japan in the late 1940s. The nation was gutted by defeat from World War II in every way, economically, industrially, culturally, socially. A brutal winter in 1946 caused a famine that limited food to less than 800 calories per day. Now, imagine if someone had said to the nation of Japan at that time, chin up, everyone. Within our lifetime, our economy will grow almost 15 times the size it was before the end of the war. Our life expectancy will nearly double. Our stock market will produce unprecedented returns. We'll go more than 40 years without ever seeing unemployment above 6%. We will become a world leader in electronic innovation. Before long, we will be so rich that we will own some of the most prized real estate in the United States. And Americans, by the way, will be our closest ally. Now, if you had spoken that kind of optimism, you would have been laughed out of the room. But that's actually what happened. Now, look, this is not to say there there aren't dark realities in our world or dark clouds. There aren't trajectories that ought to be troubling to us as Christians. There are. Daniel saw things in his visions that terrified him. In chapter 8, he says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. There's a realism in that. We rightly feel horrified and sickened by some of what we see. But in spite of all that, we still ought to be optimistic about the future. Because what the book of Daniel teaches us is that God is sovereign over all. And the book of Daniel is ultimately an optimistic book. The setting, remember, is exile. It's captivity. And yet the ultimate outlook is overwhelmingly positive. Listen to this from the vision in chapter 2. It says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. In the last chapter of the book, we read this. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. See, that's the optimistic outlook. Right? Regardless of what's happening, regardless of how the kingdoms of men are warring with each other or, or, or rising to power or falling, our hope is in an unshakable kingdom. Our hope comes from the fact because God is sovereign over all things. And we know how the story ends. The final reason for us to engage in a study of this book 
It's because the book points to and finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And I would just say here that I think the book of Daniel has been trivialized in the church. I mean, I mentioned this at the outset, but a lot of people associate the book of Daniel with just, you know, nice Sunday school stories and not much else. It's morality tales. There's a reason we're not calling this series Dare to be a Daniel. Right? Because Daniel is not the hero of the story. Now, there are things to emulate from the lives of people we meet in the Bible. But we need to be careful that we don't settle for a moralistic reading of the Bible. Yes, we can learn something about resisting sexual temptation from the way Joseph ran away from Potiphar's wife. Yes, we can learn something from David's bravery in being willing to face the Philistine giant Goliath when everyone else cowered. And yes, we can learn something from the courage of Daniel and his friends as they faced the cultural pressures they met in Babylon. But those are not the ultimate truths that are most prevalent in this book. Daniel is not the hero of this story. Now, we're talking about kingdoms in conflict, but we have to remember that behind each of those kingdoms stands a king. And I'm going to close just by reading this bit of Daniel's vision from chapter 7. It says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. See, this book points us to, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so my hope, my prayer for this series at the end of it is that we have a greater appreciation for the kingdom and for ultimately the king. So let's pray together. Father, we just want to pause this morning and say thank you to you. We recognize that we live in the kingdom of man. We experience pressures around us to conform Uh, We face temptations, we face threats, we face all of those things, and yet you have called us to be your people. You have placed us where we are, and we pray we would have the confidence that comes from knowing that you are sovereign, that you're in control. And so, God, I pray for us as a church. I pray that we would see ourselves as a city set on a hill meant to give light to those around us. God, that we don't cover up that light, but that we live it out. I pray that as we go into our workplaces, as we interact with our neighbors and parents at the schools of our kids, Lord, I pray you give us much grace and wisdom and boldness to stand for your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.